It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down American loser, the day I was born Welcome back, folks, to another edition of American Loser. It is the podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place. I'm your host, K.P. Burke. I can actually say it again, Ming. I'm a stand-up comedian again. Wow. We're making some money. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, it feels good, man. It's uh, Things are back up and swinging. We're very grateful about that. Of course, where are we other than a shared universe podcast studio in Eatontown, New Jersey, where Mike and Ming take excellent care of us as always. With me is my Delph of a dad, Lawrence Patrick. Say hello to the good people. Hey, hello, good people. How are we doing today? Happy uh, 4th of July almost. It's almost 4th of July, which is kind of appropriate for today's topic here, too. You know, a lot of... Uh, uh, it's a complicated holiday as uh, the feeling of patriotism itself can be complicated at times because, you know, you want to sit there and you want to have, uh, uh, you know, give it a little hurrah here for America. But you also want to sit there and be like, well, listen, there's there's a lot of stuff we got to think about here. We're going to give you guys a little bit of uh, intricacy today into your thoughts on this one. But, of course, as a Navy veteran myself, we do want to say thank you so much to uh, the men and women of the armed services. Uh, let's be honest, mostly men. Um, and... <laughs> um, uh, Sorry, oh boy, we, we had, get letters. We that, get letters. That's yeah. I was gonna say. Now, uh, all emails. the hate mails going right hate to mail. Ken Krantz's uh, "I Love Rock and Roll" podcast. So we're very lucky on that one, man. There you go. But uh, I'm excited to be here. We got a great episode for you. And real quickly, if you guys do enjoy the show, or if you're a first time listener, if you're a first time listener, what we do is we talk about moments that would be considered losers from American history. So maybe stuff that we don't too fondly remember. Maybe something that didn't get uh, its respect during its time. Maybe something we didn't fully understand. Or sometimes it's just Dan Sickles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, we got a good one here for you today. And if you want to enjoy, uh, I mean, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's one of the free ones here. Uh, every month we are giving you, you get three episodes for free. And then the fourth episode every month is actually Patreon exclusive. You can get that for just as little as $3 a month. That boils down to less than a dollar an episode. And it really, really helps me out for buying Ming's love. Ming's taking pictures of us with all his brand new camera equipment. Right. Uh, you talk, for that somehow. Yeah. There's always new toys in here every time <laughs> we come into the studio. So we got to keep Ming happy, guys. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Ming's the man. But I'm excited, Lawrence Patrick. And we don't mean to keep doing this to you, but for some reason, Dad, uh, lately in the topics we've been picking, which I, you know, people think that I have some grand system to it. I, I do and I <laughs> really? don't. We go, whatever interests me, and we dive down a wormhole and divvy it up from there. That's right. Um, this is another event that you technically uh, lived during the time frame of. Yes, I did. So yep. we're going to have a little fun so back and forth. We're back in ancient history, but... Uh Nonetheless. It is true. I don't know why. Every week you seem to get older. Yeah, I know. That's, I know. <laughs> but uh, all righty. So for this one, we have to explain that today's loser is not a person or a place, but really an idea. The idea is specifically loser fodder because it's a bold idea that sort of fails, but fails initially, but then kind of works out in the long run. So that can get a little bit wild here to figure out. Yeah, what is he talking about? Yeah. So uh, we'll preface it with this, guys. The Vietnam War beyond puzzling. I think there's a great quote when um, whenever you talk to people uh, from Ireland, especially in Northern Ireland, uh, they'll tell you that uh, 
when you talk about the troubles over there, if you will, with the IRA and everything else, uh, it's a great quote. It's uh, the more you think you know, the less you do That's kind right. of a thing. So the more you educate yourself on what's going on over there, the more confusing the more it confusing, gets. Yeah, the more confusion sets in. I think that holds true for the Vietnam War as well. Is that now, fair? You say the troubles. I mean, which troubles? Which which era? Which century of troubles are we talking about? Wait, another that's, weird that's thing. Another, that's another. Uh, episode unto itself. Yeah, Irish loser. Well, Irish be coming loser. out eventually. Right. <laughs> but this Vietnam War is beyond puzzling. Now, the zeitgeist of it, because you like reading history. Um, obviously, uh, you know, we, we grew up in a pretty... Uh, uh, you know, pro-America household and stuff like that. You know, you want to do the right Absolutely. thing here. But there was some shit going on. Like you told me, because I remember hearing this, people were saying um, that wasn't true. They weren't spitting on the troops when they came home. They weren't booing them when they showed up at events or anything. And you're like, no, that's bullshit. Saw it happen. Dumont. Yeah, that's right. You know, but what was the, how much information were you guys getting uh, about the Vietnam War as it was going down, as you were growing up during that time frame? Well, it was it, that was a weird situation too because you would have the nightly news um, would played a, a very heavy influence on the popular opinion. You think media is being, you know, media is controlling uh, popular opinion today. I mean, back then you were you were tuning into uh, Walter Cronkite or whoever newscaster uh, you might and be. That's your pick. the way it is. That's the way it is, and uh, you know. He was uh, not leaning left or leaning right, but it was pretty much you were getting what would be considered the facts, but who's who's issuing the facts? I mean, it, it was it was a strange time that you would actually see stuff in your living room nightly as to what went on either the day before or that day kind of a thing. So it was there was no uh, no pause button on that, that uh, there was. You know, you you were starting to question things, but at the same time, uh, you you're raised by World War II veterans, you know, people that lived through World War II, where the enemy was uh, was clear that you know the Germans were the bad guys, the Japanese were the bad guys, and there were battlefronts and, and uh, that type of a thing. That uh, where Vietnam. Um, which was followed by um, or, or followed after Korea. That was a whole a whole different situation. The, the battle we, lines yeah, were, were a, blurred. A lot of similarities sure. between the whole <clears throat> Korean situation and the, the uh, Vietnam situation, which we're going to talk about today. But they still refer to it's not the Korean War. It was a police action, the depending police on action. who you talk yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> that was a police action. Well, trust me, when. Fifty some thousand people die. Uh, that's that's a war. That's not a police action. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the the battle line or the battle front was not clearly defined. That um, so it was really a, a screwed up time, and it wasn't. Everybody was still waving the flag, and uh, America, right or wrong, it's still my America type of thing. But at the at the same time. It, questions that were definitely setting in as to do we really belong here well so you're going to show up as a, america's already established itself as a world power here because that's you're talking about the lead up into world war one being the big time frame for that because that spanish-american war fought by that crazy guy teddy roosevelt who you don't fuck with by the way just reminding everybody All right um 
he's kind of brought America onto this world stage. And America, as it's a great thing where it's like, hey, they're this brand new fighter in the boxing scene. And, uh, you know, they really don't suffer any losses here. Can they beat them? What are their weaknesses here? And then eventually they stuck around long enough that you started to see maybe a couple cracks in the foundation. Maybe they took on a fight that they, they didn't really know how to win kind of a thing. So it gets a little bit uh, confusing, as it should. All right. So we're going to try to establish a real quick uh, primer for the Vietnam Warrior before we get into the, the zoned in topic of the day. And uh, that's a, a big, big reason to me why this war, the Vietnam War, is best told in films and novels through the eyes of the boots on the ground, guys. So you can get your platoons, you can get uh, maybe a Hamburger Hill, anything like There's a lot of that's where, to me, the heart of the story is because there's kids that are just like, I was a gas station attendant in Missouri and now I got sent over here. Or there'll be an inner city kid that's like, man, I got to go over here and fight in a war. Uh, in, against another country that's trying to have their rights and I don't even really have my full rights over in America. So yeah. Why are we fighting a war that's uh, half a world away for people that really don't care that are fighting amongst themselves or so why are we getting ourselves involved with that? And uh, Again, the whole draft is uh, reinstated that, uh, you know, you're you're taking your young men at the time and uh, forcing them into the military. That was you know, that wasn't real a real popular thing for sure. No. And it's uh, it's a wild one, too, because, uh, again, I referenced the Spanish-American War earlier here. That's since the Spanish-American War, the United States has had interest in territories in the Philippines. So for more on that, please check out Smedley Butler, American Loser, the rural captain of America, one of my favorites. Uh, but nearby to the Philippines, a small country called Vietnam, which was a former French colony, was falling to a legitimate but recurring theme in American culture of this red scare that's going on. Communism keeps spreading. And we've seen communism topple several governments up to this point. So there's a legitimate fear of it. So now, again, communism had some success in you know, czarist Russia and then uh, China's obviously going that way in a, a post-World War II sense. A lot of crazy shit going on over here. But yeah, it, that's that's a that's a situation now, too, where the, the communists, I mean, that really uh, and was towards the end of the First World War. So, again, in a time frame, France is trying to colonize Vietnam. That's like late 1800s, 1887 or so. And now, uh, you know, France is trying to be, um, create all these various colonies. Actually, it was French Indochina at the time. It, was, it wasn't even Vietnam. They were calling it French Indochina. Yeah. Um, but that whole communist thing, that is becoming a, a really big threat. We have Red Scare 1 here in America. We have Red Scare 2 <laughs> a little later on. So Red Scare 2, electric boogaloo. That's <laughs> right. Um, and we're seeing the, the communists uh, taking over, causing some trouble, and uh, certainly in, in Korea, um, communism is now coming into China. So now we've got another huge uh, communist nation. And um, now the Vietnamese nationals, uh, led by one Ho Chi Minh, uh, is looking to oust French control of his own country. I'll give and, the timeline for that um, in a second here, too, if you don't right. mind. It's uh, the idea of uh, you have to fight because this is what's kind of going to draw the United States. And the idea starts getting sold to the public that, well, you got to fight communism in Vietnam. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting it in Kansas. <coughs> that kind of a thing. You got to contain it over here. So it's, it's a war of contain. So what we're starting to do is a war of attrition where it's like we're going to back the uh, southern Vietnamese government, if you will, because they're trying to 
we're backing them. But then Northern Vietnam, which is uh, openly communist under this Ho Chi Minh guy you're talking about, they're also getting backed by Russia and China. So it's we're all funneling money in. It's like imagine um, uh, two fight camps, but they're like, oh, you see these two kids, these fourth graders that are fighting on the playground. You know, well, we're going to make sure that we train that fourth grader so that he knows what he's doing over here. And then, oh, well, you're going to train him. Then we're going to train the other one, too. Yeah. And you're just watching these people put camps out, if you will. So it's a, a it's not necessarily a war by proxy. It's a war of attrition that they're hoping that they can outspend these people. And then, uh, but again, there's this weird advantage of any time that you're going into someone's country and going against them, uh, if, if you're fighting them in their own backyard, and this shit goes back to Julius Caesar, home team always has the advantage. Doesn't matter what kind of crazy weapons you're bringing in and stuff like well, that. That goes back to our own revolutionary war. I mean, the home team, the U.S. colonies um, had the, had the advantage over. Um, the British Army, but yeah, at the at the conclusion, I mean, the French are, are trying to colonize what we now call Vietnam. Um, there's uh, Vietnamese nationals that are trying to overthrow that. Um, the Second World War starts. Germany invades France, so you know France has got their own problems on their own home soil with with Germany. Um, Japan, who's allied or aligned with Germany um, now invades uh, Vietnam. They've, you know, they figured the, fr- the French are weakened by what's going on with Germany, that they're going to start to take over Vietnam. So the Vietnamese people first are fighting the French, then they're fighting the Japanese at the conclusion of the Second World War. Uh, Harry Truman uh, declares the, uh, the the Truman Doctrine, which was a, a U.S. policy that, you know, we're not going to allow any uh, any further um, countries to become entangled with uh, with communism, that we're going to help the little guy. We're going to aid, uh, aid any country that's trying to uh, uh, resist communism. Anyone who's an enemy to communism is a friend to the United States go. kind of there thing. Because go. we got all that stuff going on too now. <clears throat> all right. And then uh, that was Harry Truman. And then at the same time, we're coming in with uh, um, followed up by uh, Eisenhower, which was the uh, the Red Scare again. So again, there's this idea you got to fight it there so you don't fight it back home. And uh, this is where, again, uniquely different circumstances with Korea and Vietnam. But we now find ourselves in a situation where President John F. Kennedy, who, by the way, I, I'm very torn on JFK because there's so much good stuff about him. And there's so much you're like, man, these communists really did. If they played him up as a drunken frat boy in the office, he, there's times he made that case for them. All right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of bad shit going on with Cuba. Uh, Bay of Pigs Part 1 and 2 available now. Um there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on, but this geopolitical situation is going to continue to escalate because we're going to assist the South Vietnamese Army, a.k.a. the ARVN, with their ability to defend themselves from the communist-backed Viet Cong and the People's Army of Vietnam, a.k.a. the PAVN. So this geopolitical situation is going to continue to escalate. And we're realizing just giving them supplies, that might not be enough. Larger scale conflict is becoming inevitable. So here is your quick timeline. Uh, Ming, have you ever put off a project that you entirely mean to get around to, but just never seem to realize? I never do that. I get to everything right away. <laughs> right, I give right. it 110%. And, he really uh, does. Jumps out uh, of bed, feet on the floor. Here yeah, we go. That, that's not true. I'm a master <laughs> procrastinator, of course. <laughs> well, eventually they're going to get around to this. But uh, boom, 1954, the Geneva Accords state that North and South Vietnam, we're going to call them two separate countries. We're going to divide them by the 17th parallel. And South Vietnam, like we said, it's going to be backed by the U.S. under the leadership of a guy by the name of, and we're going to slaughter this. We're just a couple of Irish kids from Jersey, all right? So we apologize for maybe screwing up some Vietnamese names here. No Dem Dean. 
Okay. And the northern communist state is none other than the infamous trail runner and uh, track enthusiast, Ho Chi Minh. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, before we jump in, I, I, we have to interject that um, the Geneva Accord separated the country because there was a guy in the north, Ho Chi Minh, who had... Uh, who was trained in uh, communism, if you will, and was really looking to free his people, free the Vietnamese people. And he was going wherever the help might come. He actually writes like uh, the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence, and he patterns it after the American Declaration of Independence uh, in the hopes that he's going to find some uh, favoritism with the, with the U.S. Um, the U.S. wasn't buying it. Um, because they were still kind of back in the whole the French aspect. Um, so he goes to... By the way, French uh, religion does come into this too because French, uh, you know, France obviously very, uh, a lot of Catholicism, very popular in that country, some of the monarchs and stuff like that too. Now the guy who's actually going to be running uh, the initial South Vietnam government is actually uh, Catholic. Yeah, and, and Ho Chi Minh is, he declares, uh, he starts this, you know, guerrilla army, if you will, and uh, there's a huge battle against the French, uh, Dien Bien Phu, which was a, a major loss of the French forces at that particular point. The France kind of realizes we're not able to uh, control, control the situation in Vietnam anymore. So that was a, a huge loss. And that happened right before the Geneva Accord. So obviously the whole country is in disarray. And at this Geneva Accord, they decide, well, we're going to divide the country in half. And the northern half is going to go wherever they want to, which was communism. And in the south was still being protected, if you will, by uh, the U.S. interests. And they were doing whatever they can to prevent communism from being spread any further. Eisenhower even came out with his famous uh, domino theory that uh, if we let one country fall to communism, all the other surrounding countries will quickly follow suit with that whole domino effect. Um, so we've got communist north and we've got a supposed democratic south, but uh, uh, we'll see that uh, that didn't really work. The out idea so being well that within two years they're supposed to have elections to then unify again. But this shit's, right. we're going to have a whole fucking war that's about to break out. That, right. I mean, it's already going on, but the U.S. is about to get involved here. So that's uh, uh, 1954, the Geneva Accords. 1959, just a couple of years later, the first American soldiers are killed by guerrilla raiders near Saigon. That's guerrillas as in guerrilla warfare, not Megillah guerrillas. All right. Just to be clear. Uh Within two years after that, JFK will unleash the Green Berets and a special new group of warriors. If you want to know more about them, please check out one of our, I think it's our most successful episode ever uh, over on YouTube, over 20,000 views, Demo Dick Marcinko. Go check him out, folks. Man created SEAL Team 6. But lots of stuff is going to go down here. The U.S. is dropping bombs and bodies like there's no tomorrow, and they're having some massive successes early in the war. But the problem is the government they're trying to back, again, the South, Viet you know, South Vietnam government, is wildly unpopular. And a few burning Buddhist monks and massacres later, the U.S. started wondering, whoa, whoa, whoa. What the fuck did we just get yeah. ourselves into well, over what here? What do these people really want? Maybe the people want to be communists and they don't want to be a democratic kind of a thing. And the whole democratic side or South Vietnam, things weren't going too well with with their government either. So um, there was lots of lots of. Uh, Discord, if you will. We'll be polite and just say uh, Discord's discord. What a pleasant <laughs> yeah. way to phrase that yeah. one, Lawrence Patrick. All right. The uh, the government they're trying to support 
proves so unstable, unstable enough that the U.S. winds up backing a coup from within. So yeah. they actually overthrow their own government they're trying to prop up. Right. So uh, Deem and his brother are actually brutally murdered. So were they great guys? No. Did they alienate a lot of the... When you piss off Buddhists, that's when you know you're doing something bad, all right? Um, but... Uh, just to give a little bit more insight here, between 1963 and 1965, that's just two years, all right? Control in South Vietnam will shift between 12, right. I, I should you not, a dozen different governments. 12 different governments in a two-year time span. One coup after the other. So Who's the US, on first? <laughs> I don't know. When? <laughs> so the, uh, the, the U.S. is trying to do the right thing, but they just can't pick a winner to save their life here. Now, I mentioned specifically 1963, kind of a big year. What's Lawrence Patrick Burke doing in uh, the great state of New Jersey in, in 1963? 1963? He's probably in seventh grade in 1963. I hear you. Because again, now- Mustache just coming in. <laughs> it's right, just starting to sprout. Um, but- uh, we're getting with this whole uh, this Truman doctrine. This has carried through a number of different um, um, political agendas here in the United States, too, because it starts with Truman, who's promising to stop communism. That's followed by Eisenhower. Eisenhower hands it off to Kennedy. Kennedy is now sending in quote-unquote advisors into Vietnam to help out the Vietnamese people. He sends in the Green Beret, sends in these various advisors, but things are definitely starting to escalate, and we're getting ourselves embroiled deeper and deeper into into Vietnam. Some of the early missions for the SEALs especially, they're not even, they're not legally allowed to talk about some of the shit that was going down over there because the body counts were ridiculous. Right. And we specifically mentioned 63 is a big, big year, Dad, because there's a you know a lot of things going on over in Vietnam, a lot of things going on politically stateside. There's also a crazy little car ride in Dallas that's going to change the face of a nation forever. Uh, President John F. Kennedy is assassinated, so you got regime change in Vietnam on the regular, and then you got regime change in the U.S. too. I mean, it's it's JFK's VP, Lyndon Bain Johnson, he's going to come in now, but it is regime change. There's a new uh, there's a new captain at the helm of the ship over here. You're going to have this wild uh, situation with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which we have intentionally skipped over because we don't want to spoil this. That's a future episode. Yeah, maybe, absolutely. Right? Maybe Patreon episode. exclusive. We'll figure it all out. But that's going to go down and the U.S. is going to start to increase their efforts in Vietnam. Yeah. Like you said, Dad, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Air Cavalry, by the way, brand new invention for the time. Uh, think the movie We Were Soldiers, which actually focuses on one of the first major land battles uh, of the war uh, in the Idrang Valley, which they believed that really there was a genuine hope at this time that the war could be won shortly and quickly as the NVA and Vietnam casualty numbers are significantly high. I mean, they, they literally, I, I won't say the guy's name, but a great friend of the show, his father was, uh, I, I don't know if he was a Green Beret or if he was just a, a ranger. Uh, I think he was a ranger, but he was uh, saying that it was some of the end scenes from Apocalypse Now where there's just, you know, severed heads all over the place and stacking bodies. And he goes, that wasn't too much of an embellishment. Well, not like you'd, not like you'd hoped it was. But, yeah, but again, uh, too, uh, we talked about it earlier on the media front. Um, the American public is, is being fed all good news. that All oh, these Viet Cong, they're just the gorillas out in the hills kind of a thing that uh, they're really not a, a force to be reckoned with. That's why we have to send in these uh, rangers and, and Green Beret and kind of stuff to, to uh, seek them out, to find them. There's no definite battle lines being drawn here that it's uh, 
it's a hit and miss type of a thing. There's not major These aren't battles. gentlemen generals greeting each other and, on the pitched yeah, battlefields. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's not it's not like we were fighting the Germans where as soon as we cross over the Rhine and we're into Germany type of thing or, you know, Normandy and or even in the in the uh, in the Pacific fighting the Japanese, there was no clear battles like Iwo Jima and that type of a thing. This was uh, various hit and miss and that was one of the reasons why um, they were trying to establish some of these bases along the uh, the 17th parallel or, or the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, that to prevent these communists from sneaking in from the north coming down what later became known as Ho Chi Minh Trail that they were feeding uh, supplies to um, the communists that were embedded within South Vietnam. So, Can you hear Ho Chi Minh Trail without hearing it in Robin Williams' voice from uh, Good Morning Vietnam? <laughs> That's right. Good morning. Right. Follow the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Follow the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Well, you're right, Dad. Good here's morning, the, America. Here's the problem. You can't... Uh, good morning, Vietnam. Come good on. morning, Vietnam. Man, we bought so. you coffee beforehand, too. What's going on with you? Well, <laughs> good morning, America. Good morning, depending on where you're getting your news. I mean, Robin Williams is delivering it. It's good, good morning, Vietnam. So, Also true. Just picture Kathy Lee Gifford in the jungles. Well. Uh, problem is, though, like you were saying, you can't quite... Because uh, if this was a, a legit pitch battle, like, oh, look, we're killing all these uh, uh, you know, NVA and Viet Cong members here. But a good way to phrase it, too, I was explained, uh, was explained to me, the NVA would be your trained regulars. The Viet Cong could be like your uh, um, fly-by-night, your Minutemen, if you will, kind of a thing. But the problem is you can't quite tell the size and strength of some of these armies, if you will, because they have a ton of what's been described as irregulars. Uh, there's militias, there's spies, there's saboteurs. That's why the invading force will always have a, a, a disadvantage because you can't quite tell. Well, these people that say that we're welcome here, are we really welcome here? We don't know. And uh, in South Vietnam, there's a lot of people, could be upwards of half a million people, are potentially working against the U.S. efforts because now you have this insurgent kind of a thing going on here. Uh, imagine, if you will, a slasher horror movie when you realize that the phone call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with here. South Vietnam finally starting to have a stable government, which is worth the troubles the United States is going through. The problem is, though, the war is getting more and more unpopular back in the U.S. For more on that, please check out our episode on the hard riots another one of our classics yeah so. and and um, again the assassination of Kennedy in 63 was a definite game changer um, you know things on the home front are not going real well either that there's a number of uh, uh, different things going on socially economically and everything else that uh, LBJ is now trying to create what he quoted what he called the great society kind of a thing that we're going to uplift we got a whole civil rights movement going on um, but one of the things that happened with uh, LBJ is he starts now bombing the north uh, that uh, he's going to try to cut off the uh, the supply line to the communists in the south um, to help protect the supposed democratic South Vietnam. Um, but now when he's bombing the North, that really kind of inflames or starts to really swell the whole anti-war protests that, you know, now the Americans are saying, well, now we're taking the war to uh, another country into North Vietnam. We're taking it to those people and, you know, the, the poor civilian population. So with with that whole bombing campaign that's really where the anti-war protests really start to uh get some legs uh type of a thing and uh we we see a lot of uh um 
um, celebrities, if you will, protesting the war. Um, Whoa, got, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, right. right. Are you telling me there's some celebrities <laughs> out there right, that are thinking right. of themselves as political activists? Um, one of the biggies of the time was uh, Muhammad Ali. I mean, he's a world class uh, boxer. He's the heavyweight champion in the world who's resisted being drafted uh, into the service. I mean, and the draft is 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 instated that uh, young men are taken. Uh, you know, out of their uh, their prime years, if you will, and forced into the military to go fight in uh, South uh, in Southeast Asia, in South in Vietnam, and uh, you know, there's a, a huge backlash against that. Martin Luther King comes out and says that uh, you know it's uh, it's uh, a tragedy um, to uh, be sending our people over there and spending millions and millions and millions of dollars um, in South Vietnam, where People on our own home front are, uh, uh, you know, with the uh, the poor, the black, the whatever um, in in our own country that maybe we should take care of our own rather than uh, fighting uh, fighting somebody's war over in South Vietnam that maybe these people don't really care. All they're all they're concerned about is who's giving them the biggest bowl of rice at that particular point in time. Yeah, so. it's, a, it's a tough one because uh, America's conscience is uh, emerging around this time frame too for a lot of things because we talk about it a lot, but there's a hierarchy of needs. And when you're a country on the rise, you got to make sure that your country works. So your hierarchy of needs is not, you can't really sit there and be like, well, let's make sure that everyone, I don't want anyone disenfranchised here, you know? Um, but that's kind of a, a, a crazy political and cultural tide. Uh, you got things going on. Again, the war on the ground itself. That's why when you talk about these movies, like we said, the best way to, to view that and get the idea of it is to go by the people who were there. Because otherwise, we're bogged down in some geopolitical bullshit right now combined with what are the feelings about the people who think they're completely well informed just because they watch the news for an hour a night. So it's tough. But this is all going to lead us to the critical year of 1968, the new year. At least the uh, Vietnamese New Year, January 31st. In Vietnamese culture, the Festival of Tet, which is the festival of the first morning of the first day, they celebrate Tet. It's like a big, big holiday. And you even told me this too, Dad, that they order, um, they celebrate what? A lot of people, uh, a lot of the Vietnamese uh, celebrate actually their uh, birthdays during the, uh, the Tet celebration that... You know, if you're if you were born in uh, in July, you might be celebrating your birthday in, during the uh, yeah. That way, you don't have to get a second present or anything. Right. It's like it's, kids born it's December eighteenth. Right. <laughs> it's another year, so it's another year. So, so well, you're celebrating perhaps your birthday, it, but it's it, it's more than just a New Year's celebration, and it's more than just you know one night of debauchery like we have in this country. But, uh, <laughs> By the way, Ming just pulled it up on the thing here. So under the uh, frequently asked questions uh, for what is Tet? How long is Tet? Why is Tet the most important holiday to the Vietnamese? And then it says, what should we not do during Tet? I'm going to say uh, launch an offensive. <laughs> that should probably be on the list. But the um, yeah, and leading up, leading up to uh, the Tet uh, of '68 uh, too, we've also had in '67 one of the largest uh, in October of '67. So at the close of '67, uh, things were not doing real well. That we have one of the largest uh, anti-war demonstrations where a hundred thousand people are gathered at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, and uh, you know there was a, a big. Uh, um, confrontation, if you will, at the Pentagon later that night. Um, the anti-war movement, again, we said that Martin Luther King is uh, is coming out and saying that, uh, you know, the federal funds 
that are being taken from the war um, or should, should be going to domestic programs. So, you know, there's there's a lot of a grassroots feeling that uh, maybe we really don't belong in, in Vietnam. And so now Tet's their big festival here. So Tet's the big festival. And uh, again, they're celebrating their kind of a New Year thing. It's a big holiday, very widely respected on both sides of the 17th parallel, too. So North Vietnam and South Vietnam all would get together, not together, but they would all recognize the holiday of Tet. So something that made Tet extra special was because there would also be a ceasefire between the two hostile parties. In fact, many ARVN members of the South Vietnamese Army, those guys are regulars, paid regulars. They would actually go home and schedule their leave around Tet so they could spend time with their family. So yeah. And, and to have that ceasefire, that was something that's already happened in, in years past. There's precedent for they it. Were, yeah. They would say, all right, you know, it's uh, it's the holiday. Let's uh, let's just back off and we're not going to be killing people on uh uh, on, on Christmas. So or just so Easter. people know, yeah, just so people know how that works too. When you do a stand down, you go to like a bare bones crew, if you will. So there's still people on the, the watch is still being stood. Right. But you're definitely running with a skeleton crew, if you will. So this leads us finally to the wild, bizarre and game changing event known as the Tet Offensive. So with the stand down of the Tet holiday leave, those left on duty were hoping for a nice, quiet holiday ceasefire as they'd gotten in the past. They do not get their wish at all. Okay, the NVA and the Viet Cong began carrying out coordinated attacks, coordinated attacks. All right. Uh, Literally caught everybody with their pants down here on over 100 cities in South Vietnam, including supposed strongholds for the ARVN and the American forces in the cities of Hue and Saigon. The attacks are fast, shocking, effective, and although they are largely put down by the superior firepower of the United States military, they truly do catch the boys with their pants down. All right. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is that the uh, North Vietnamese actually called for the ceasefire during Tet. It's like, hey, you know what? This Tet is coming up. Maybe we should just call for a ceasefire or a stand down uh, during that uh, Tet holiday. It's bad. And they, uh, they launched this thing. Well, they're going to carry out the attacks. The plan's very simple, and it works, man. It really does. It do, it works. Again, we talk about this idea as a loser because when you see how it, the feelings it can conjure up, psychological warfare comes in here heavy. Uh, they carry out the attacks. They're going to inflict as much damage as possible and hope that this you know psychological warfare thing that they're doing, where it's like, see, we can attack you at any time, and we're within your own ranks, and you really have no good way out of here. They're trying to demoralize and, and break up the already clearly unstable relationship between the United States and the South Vietnamese government. They want to break the confidence and anybody who's like middle of the road kind of thing, people don't realize this. The American Revolution, uh, a third of the country supported the American Revolution. A third of the country was Tories, loyalists to the crown. And a third just goes, we don't really give a shit. Just leave us alone. Yeah. So now if you can get that third that doesn't give a shit to pick a side all of a sudden, that's kind of what they're doing over here. But One major reason for the surprise, aside from the presumed holiday ceasefire, was that U.S. forces knew that they were in for some shit. They weren't expecting it to come in the form of so many different attacks at so many different places. The U.S. was actually preparing for a major conflict where they saw things coming. You know where we're going, LP. We're about to set you up for success. Uh, They're preparing themselves for a major conflict at a particular and strategically significant location. Ming, you might have heard it mentioned in a certain Bruce Springsteen song about being born in the U.S. Say, um, fucking had a brother at Kason. Yeah. So, Dad, what the fuck is Kason? Well, Kason was a uh, military base in the northern end of South Vietnam. So, it's very close to the DMZ, to that 17th parallel, and very close to Laos. Um, and there was 
if there's going to be a major highway in um, South Vietnam near the border, it was Route 9. So this was a military base that um, was actually set up initially by the French. So it, it's it's got long roots. And strategically, it was a pretty important uh pretty important place to, again, to try to protect any infiltration from the North Vietnamese coming into the South or going around, <laughs> doing an end around and coming down through Laos um, with this Ho Chi Minh Trail, the supply line type of a thing. But um, Khe Sanh is a primarily a Marine base, the U.S. Marines. There was about 6,000 Marines set up in Quezon, and they were sent there to, again, try to prevent this infiltration from the north. Um, the, uh, the communist forces are starting to have a buildup surrounding that area. Now, this is before Tet. That hasn't happened yet. This is uh, this is in the beginning of '68, uh, in in Jan- early uh, early January, and uh, William Westmoreland is the uh, the head honcho uh, for the U.S. military forces in Seat- in South Vietnam at this particular point. But this is a pretty crucial base that they were establishing there. Um, and there is an airstrip there. They start to build this place up um, in, uh, in, again, to try to prevent this infiltration. Um, but uh, now they're sensing that there's uh, a, a, a huge uh, North Vietnamese uh, army uh, buildup surrounding this thing. And they start to launch this huge bombardment uh, uh, on on Quezon. on the initial bombardment, the major ammunition dump within the within Quezon is blown up. So a lot of the artillery and everything else uh, ammunition was uh, blown up, and these these Marines now become surrounded by uh, well, there's various estimates, uh, but what is pretty. Uh, Concurrent is uh, there's 20,000 North Vietnamese Army regulars surrounding Khe Sanh, which is being held by 6,000 Marines. They are now in a, in a siege situation that um, they're cut off, um, and the only way of supplying these uh, these poor guys are um, by air airdrops. Uh, this is viewed. Um, by Westmoreland and President Johnson as America's Dien uh, that again that was the major battle that the French lost. Do you know how proud I am of this this Irish shop teacher that he just pulled that one off? What Dien Look at God, oh, man, <laughs> beaming with pride right now. All right, there you go. But uh, again, that was the major loss to the French, which kind of divided the country in half to begin with. Um, so Westmoreland did not want Quezon to become the uh, the Vim view of uh, of America, that they were going to hold on to Quezon no matter what the cost, that they were not going to. And again, the uh, the media hype or the, 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 the company line was that uh, you know the the Viet Cong are just these uh, irregulars, these these uh, guys out in the hills, out in the jungles, type of a thing. Peasant but, army. But now now 
we, we got some serious shit going on here because this is one of the first times. This was this was probably the the major battle of the entire Vietnam War was was Quezon, so, or one of one of which. Little side note too that I think you'll appreciate is that uh, in I believe it's Call of Duty Black Ops. That when you play that game, this is like 10 years ago or something like that. I was playing that on a PlayStation 3 and you're in Quezon at one point and you're trying to fight. And it, typically in a video game, you, you, you know, when you're playing something like that, you kill enough of the enemy and then they go, OK, cool. So your next objective is this. If you don't leave Quezon, if you don't get out of there and follow the next prompt of the mission, they just keep coming. Right. So you can actually get stuck in there for hours before you realize like, oh, I'm about to run out of ammunition. And you're like, oh, shit, that's actually what was going on here. This right. is a real legit fear. So all of a sudden your video game gets a little more uncomfortable. Yeah, and the initial bombardment, a lot of the uh, ammunition and supplies were, were blown up. So now these guys are, are surrounded. Um, and, and it wasn't just one particular base. Quezon was a number of hills surrounding the base, which became crucial because you got to take the high ground on this whole thing. Um, and um, to show you how important... Quezon was to Westmoreland and to to Johnson. Uh, they were even considering using uh, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear weapons in the in the defense of Quezon and uh, chemical weapons, which uh, Agent Orange stuff like uh, that. Yeah. Well, Agent Orange had already been had already been used, but um, which they um, used by the way to get rid of uh, the, the deep canopy cover. So you wanted to shed the leaves of the trees, kind of a thing. Yeah, but when and but. The, the whole storyline that the, the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese were just these uh, irregulars or uh, guerrilla fighters. Now the, the North Vietnamese army is bringing in tanks for the first time. So, you know, they're being supplied by communist China and communist uh, the Soviets, the communist Russia, that uh, they got some from some pretty serious shit. That the, the bombardment was was huge and, and unending. Uh, it was ceaseless that the only way that these guys could have additional supplies brought to them is by airdrop. It's a, the the airfield still remained open, but um, what they were going through uh, was just Yeah, uh, imagine being the plane that has to make that drop. Right, you know. you're coming in. Actually, there was accounts where planes really weren't landing there was it was kind of like a rolling stop that the planes be rolling stand in. near the door <laughs> yeah, and as they're rolling down the the strip um stuff is being thrown out meanwhile the wounded are being loaded on and mm-hmm. then they're flowing and out of there and there's all kinds of um barrages going on around it to uh, kind of cover these guys airplanes are being um mortared and, and shot upon as they're, as they're coming in on the on the strip but uh, you know the guys are running out of food they're running out of water um, this was some some pretty serious shit and this siege went on for 77 days yeah I got nervous after 20 minutes in a video game now imagine that you're sitting there for the better part of uh, three months you know and uh, by the way they said uh, the South Vietnamese uh, troops that were stationed over there and the US Marines it was, it was mostly Marines I think um they fought like hell. They held the line. Um, this was definitely 
this should have been a moment that would be celebrated, but the sheer terror of the force that they were coming with. Because again, like you said, Deb, we knew shit was coming this way. And when I say we, the U.S. government knew that something was going to go down at Quezon. And now you got all this crazy other little smaller ancillary attacks that are distracting, making everybody else. Well, just how many of them are there? That kind of thing. It's getting very hard to quantify what the enemy actually is. Yeah. And, and to that, Kev, um, this, the Battle of Quezon or the Siege of Quezon is still one of the most argumented uh, um, battles of all of uh, the Vietnam War that, uh, again, I, I said it earlier that there was no clear battle lines drawn that uh, the good guys, the bad guys, and what was the, the only way that we could really report how well we were doing or how bad we were doing was by body count. And <laughs> the KIA is killed in action. Um, that if we, we took out, you know, 10,000 of them and they only took out 500 of us uh, kind of a thing that that would be considered a victory but you know and again we're, we're trying to paint uh, the positive picture here um, for the folks back home that's coming into their living rooms every night on the on the nightly news that uh, um, if you can report that you've got you know a body count of uh, in, in the thousands uh, well yeah, we, we were able to hold them off and and wipe out a, a vast number. But of if them. you're doing the give peace a chance thing, then you're also sitting there and and now the U.S. is bragging, but like we got this many people killed, and they're like, well, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, that's not a, maybe right. don't tout that as a success. You want to talk about territory gained, but like you said, Dad, really hard to do so. And also uh, the other part that comes in later is uh, they are not exactly big on respecting borders on certain things. No. <laughs> not exactly a strength of uh, the, the North Vietnamese army. But uh, there's also two other very, very noteworthy moments from the Tet Offensive. Uh, and this is going to be the Battle of Hue and also the U.S. fighting at the uh, U.S. Embassy in Saigon. So Battle of Hue, um, which, by the way, there's a U.S. Navy ship, the USS Hue City, who was, uh, I guess, the sister ship to my boat, the uh, USS Kearney. And my roommate in the barracks was actually on the Hue City. So that, that was a pretty cool Google to you know check that out. Um, but the Battle of Hue, a.k.a. the Siege of Hue, is a brutal one. All right. The defending forces of American and South Vietnamese troops are very quickly overwhelmed and the city is overtaken by the insurgent NVA Viet Cong forces before the U.S. could retake the city, which, by the way, when they did, they literally had to go house to house, knocking on doors, uh, clearing out houses one by one. I mean, it's like uh, it, it, it almost seems like. It's foreshadowing also going back to, you know, it, it, this is guerrilla warfare to a degree. You don't know who's and where. They're going to booby trap this. I mean, it is a, a gross, ugly war. And these troops are fighting their asses off to try to retake this ancient city of Hue, which for the most part, the people have been pretty good to them over there. So you show up trying to help and then you lose your ground. Now, terrifyingly enough, uh, a bunch of the, the legitimately ancient buildings, I mean, old temples, stuff like that, old citadels. This stuff's getting destroyed here as they're trying to they're going to lose and then take back the city in this uh, battle of way. But the Viet Cong, while they're in power over there. So in, before the U.S. can retake the city, the Viet Cong round up anyone and everyone that they thought to be problematic to their cause. A little bit of a recurring theme with communism here, guys. Uh, we've noticed that you don't support the party very much. <laughs> yeah, they come get you. All right. So they go ahead. They scoop up anybody that they deemed as problematic or maybe being a little bit too friendly with the United States. They round them up. And, uh, well, the U.S., when they come take the city back, they find mass graves with over twenty eight hundred bodies found in these mass graves of anybody who was even if you sold them a stick of gum, 
you were getting killed by the, the Viet Cong here. So the worst part about that one, this gets even a little bit grosser here. I found that unnerving to find any sort of a, anytime you hear mass graves, that's not good. Uh, 2,800 bodies in these mass graves, an estimated 3,000 more people are just missing. So that, that POW MIA thing, which by the way, that, that's the flag where you want to have a, a political difference about anything. Um, you know, in America, I'll listen to your argument. I'll talk to you. I'll be respectful. You got a problem with POW MIA? I'll kick your fucking ass. <laughs> All right, because this is brutal, man. People are straight up went missing around this time frame. And uh, 3,000 people who were just trying to live their life, who got caught up in the middle of a war between two hostile parties, are now missing. So the Viet Cong eventually do lose the city back to the U.S. But at what cost, man? I know it's a cliche, but at what cost? This city's pretty much destroyed and you're missing 5,000 people, you know, in total, whether they're dead in a mass grave or just disappeared into thin air. The city and its populace paid a devastating price for this Battle of Way. So even though the Tet Offensive has not been largely successful in a lot of ways here, this Battle of Way is definitely like, well, holy crap, this is this isn't exactly we talk about having the nuclear option. They have a nuclear option, but their their nuclear power is manpower. So it's terrifying, man. Now, do you remember, because this one's the one that kind of uh, is where the, the psychological warfare thing comes into effect. Do you have any memories of watching the U.S. Embassy fighting uh, on the news? No, that the, um, to, a, to a certain degree. I know that that was that was telecast, actually, because um, there was uh, sappers that were able to blow a hole in the in the outside wall of the U.S. Embassy. So here you are in, in Saigon. Uh, in the middle of the South Vietnamese capital, Saigon, that was supposed to be, you know, a safe place. Guys would go on R and R for uh, yeah. to Saigon. Uh, the U.S. Embassy is in Saigon, and now during the Tet Offensive, we have these um, communist saboteurs that are blowing a hole in the side of the of the uh, U.S. Embassy in the middle of freaking Saigon, and they're shooting up the place. And it, it took them uh, a long time to uh, oust them to a neutral. To neutralize them, six hours. But but again, that's uh, that's being telecast uh, live back home. Uh, you know that because obviously you're going to have um, reporters within the embassy grounds um, in in the middle of the of this war. So and it, just the power it, of the news because we're not exactly at a twenty four seven news network time frame just yet, right? You had no, to, the news came in at a specific time. You made sure you didn't miss it. Yeah, you would you would tune in at the the six o'clock news or, the, or I would say probably the six o'clock news would be the uh, the time frame. So while you're uh, eating dinner at, at home, uh, you can be watching uh, um, Walter Cronkite on the on the TV at the same time. And Walter Cronkite was he was an icon. He was he was it. He was he was a moderate reporter that he wasn't slanted to the left or slanted to the right. He was pretty much uh, a down the middle kind of a guy, and if if Walter's telling you, it, it, you you pretty much can believe. He was, it. I think, called the most trusted man in America. Yeah, that that was, uh, which is wild too. Uh, also, I, no, I don't, no more side notes here. But Anderson Cooper's related to the Vanderbilts. I always think that's the wildest thing. Um, but this Battle of Way, that one's uh, obviously huge price being paid for that one here. This MB, embassy attack, it's not. Um, you're not going to see the 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 
body count and the, the bloodlust here, if you will, because it's only 19 members of this Viet Cong NVA group that are able to get through the, the embassy here. And like we said, uh, U.S. personnel, we suffer five losses, which sounds small. But again, Dad, the action was caught on camera and by the press that was staying very busy. I mean, there, people are reporting on this as it's happening here uh, at the embassy. This type of footage, even though they do wind up clearing everything out in about six hours, that footage is on the living room TV. And all of a sudden, this idea. So you want to say like, because they always talk about it, too. There's the home front during World War II time frame. The boys are over there. But here's the home front. What's going on in the home front? And you'd get updates about what's going on when you would go to the new uh, the move. Ugh, the movies would give you little news, real snippets of, uh, you know, the war at home kind of a thing. And so. Now you're seeing this every night in your living room and it's a war that's being fought and you're seeing the carnage and it's being fought by potentially a kid that lived down the street. You know, they used to play with, uh, you know, your, your your brother and he's overseas right now getting shot at. And you're seeing that, well, man, I don't know if this thing's going to work out for us. It's starting to feel a little bit unwinnable here. So, yeah. And I think to another a, a key thing was when the whole anti-war protest uh, you're starting to see it's not just the uh, the college hippie kids or the intellectuals, if you will, that are protesting the war. Now you're starting to see Vietnam War veterans coming home, guys in wheelchairs, guys on crutches who are all shot up, and they're they're um, throwing their their medals away. John Kerry. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is. Definitely, I mean, you can you can argue against. Well, you're some long-haired hippie college kid is protesting the war. What the hell does he know? But now when you have returning veterans who are now protesting the war, saying that we don't belong there, um, that that'll, that'll change. That'll change opinions for sure. I mean, that's one of the great quotes of all time. It was like Vietnam. Why? Because you weren't there, man. Yeah. You know, that one, that shit's powerful. That resonates, man. Um, also, by a strange little thing with uh, politics, too. John Kerry is throwing his war medals. Uh, there's footage of it. They've seen that one. He tried to, to deny that. Um, but around this time frame, guess who's also in a Vietnamese POW camp, John McCain. John McCain. <laughs> so these are people that are going to become, you know, huge figures in American politics that are kind of, I guess, um, young. I mean, not young kids, but these are young men at the time uh, who are then going to dedicate. Their, they're never going to get out of politics after this. This is almost like their intro to it. Um, but starting to get a little bit of this resentment on the home front here like you're saying dad the idea that there's a draft going on that's the the big gross thing because that's why i would never subscribe to the idea of like oh well these troops don't want to fight a war they don't believe in it's like well listen you signed up dude it's not just free college you signed up for this if you didn't accept that as a possibility then you're an asshole right um but back then if you're being drafted to go fight a war against your will in a place in a part of the country where they're saying well there's no chance why the fuck do i gotta go over there man it, it's definitely it's very easy to see how you could if you did go and serve you did so begrudgingly and it's not it's getting a little bit ugly over here too again this is uh mid-february of 1968 we finally hit a very gross milestone here, a terrible milestone. The highest weekly U.S. soldier death rate is reached at 543 Americans in one week. Okay, that's bad, man. This war is thought of at home as becoming unwinnable. Many of the draftees are fleeing or accepting their service as a sort of a death sentence. Others are going to go overseas to hoping to serve their country in an honorable way like their ancestors did, like their family. You know, maybe they're even, their, their pops was a World War II veteran or something, you know. But you're seeing a war of pure chaos that is devoid of honor in many ways. Now, by February, March timeframe, the battles of Hue and Saigon are over and considered to be American victories. 
Okay, so every one of these Tet Offensive things we talk about, Quezon, the boys held the line, right? Uh, Battle of Way, we retook the city. Saigon in the embassy, boom, six hours, it was over. The Tet Offensive has absolutely failed on paper, but this was a confidence shaker, man. This was like, you saw Muhammad Ali earlier, uh, Muhammad getting, you know, beat up in a fight a little bit here, maybe having, uh, you know, somebody dropping or maybe he slips like Chuck Webner, Bayon reference. <laughs> His confidence gets shaken. But now Muhammad Ali's confidence gets shaken up because he got up and said, well, now he's mad. He yeah. came after you. But now you're like, well, we're kind of oscillating back and forth between whether or not we even want to support this war. And it looks like, you know, there's no easy way out of this. So I think Cronkite's actually starting to get fed lines by some of the higher ups in the government saying we got no shot at winning this thing. We got to find an honorable way to get the fuck out of there. Yeah, and, and a lot of the I mean, people were just getting uh, fed up with, with some of the bullshit because Westmoreland was saying the Quezon was vital. We have to hold the line and at all costs, we're going to hold Quezon. Um, you know, you got 6,000 Marines that are fighting against 20,000 uh, um, North Vietnamese armies. And the body count is huge that although we we probably lost 500 Marines, U.S. casualties on that. Um, the body count was 10,000 uh, on the other side. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, they're saying that uh, this was vital. They have to hold that. Uh, they got these guys held the uh, held the siege for 77 days, which was huge. So this is going on and on and on. This is every night after night after night. What's going on? What's going on? And then um, the uh, Tet Offensive, if you will, is is one that they were not successful. But then within a matter of months, uh, Quezon is abandoned. Um, they, they they pull back out of Quezon. So, I mean, if that thing was so vital, how come within a matter of months now all of a sudden we're abandoning that base and we're, and we're pulling back that, uh, you know, somebody's somebody's feet and somebody a whole whole line of bullshit here. Yeah. Hard to gather intel when you, you don't know the you really don't know the agencies of which uh, you're combating. It, it's a wild one, man. And again, like you said, Dad, this is around that time frame here. But February 27th, uh, Cronkite, famed journalist, a uh, very moderate man, a.k.a. the most trusted man in America, he finally said after being privately briefed by many higher ups in the governments for like months prior to this, he actually publicly stated, he goes, I believe that there is no easy end in sight for this war in Vietnam. So they're starting to say, hey, we're not, we're not losing this war, but it's going to end in a stalemate because you can't beat something that you don't know what it is. It's like trying to fight the smoke monster from Lost. You know, you don't know what you're dealing with. So uh, LBJ said after this, we want to talk about the power that Walter Cronkite held uh, as being a true objective journalist, too, man. Uh, Cronkite, when he said what he said, LBJ's response was, well, shit, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. So that means that, you know, you got your it's such a weird thing in America. We have these weird coastal elites on the West Coast or the East Coast uh, that those people can tend to have whatever opinions you want. But when you're losing the heartland, you know, when the good people of, uh, say, Indiana or, or you know, uh, down south, when they're like, oh, well, shit, man, that when you get people that typically would sign up to fight in a heartbeat sitting there and saying, well, I don't know if this is the one I want to be a part of, you're losing uh Again, you've lost middle America. That's that's a huge, huge factor in whether or not you're going to be able to continue this thing. Also, mind you, we are coming up with elections and stuff like that. So this is the most telling sign about the power that Cronkite has in his response to seeing the psychological warfare aspect as demonstrated by the Tet Offensive by March of 68. And keep in mind, I just said it. End of February is when Cronkite said what he said. By March of 68, LBJ announced, well, hey, guys, listen, I'm not running for reelection. Holy shit. 
Okay, so we're talking about regime change overseas with coup after coup after coup in South Vietnam. Well, goddamn, the guy got killed and his vice president just took over. Now he's not even going to come run. So what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Oh, shit. Dwight Eisenhower, one of the guys who was originally kind of getting involved, was saying like, hey, we got to figure out what we're going to do about this domino theory thing you mentioned earlier, Dad. Yeah, his vice president is now going to come back and he wants to run. And he's not a crook, folks. All right. (laughs) Right. Richard Milhouse Nixon, who ran on being a law and order candidate. And he's going to show up. And in his election, this part of his campaign, he promises, he goes, I'm going to end the draft. All right. Yeah, when Nixon runs on a law and order uh, candidacy. Um, but again, on the home front, um, we got all this shit going on in Vietnam and being fed a whole bunch of bullshit. And people are starting to question about uh, how much is it worth in money and in lives to um, defend the people that really don't want to be defended. Maybe they just want to be communists. So, so be it. Um, but in 68, it was not a very good year. In April of 68, um, Martin Luther King is assassinated. So um, that caused a, a huge, huge turmoil within the country. And then uh, followed, uh, you know, that's in April, and then followed in June, uh, Robert F. Kennedy is uh, assassinated. So, 68 was not a real a real good year for uh, for the U.S. I would say that might be the craziest year in American history, uh, and that would include 1776. <laughs> so, um, in September of 1969, all right, 1969, new year, new year, right? New me, new year, new me, new Tet. Ho Chi Minh dies of a heart attack. Richard Nixon would be in the White House, and uh, the U.S. forces and uh, numbers in Vietnam would gradually decline after LBJ. To his credit, LBJ did decide to halt bombing above the 20th parallel before leaving office. So that actually left them uh, – uh, you could only really bomb the areas that were on the border between North and South Vietnam at that 17th parallel we mentioned earlier. So that's saying – in a weird way, that's like such a dumb move because you're saying, well – so we can't go deep into enemy territory with these bombings. But at the same time, he's like, well, they're not really connected. They're not an active threat to us. So we're going to leave those people alone to reduce civilian casualties. And so it's such a weird politics plays everything here because now you're worried about, well, what are the people going to say? We got people burning draft cards on the front steps here. We got uh, some uh, labor construction guys fucking up some college kids in front of everybody to see. Um it, it's a, a, a it could have been a breaking point for America. Yeah, four college kids are dead in Kent State, Ohio. That's coming up. Yeah, that comes up shortly uh, there. Uh, I think right after this, actually. But uh, Nixon's reducing the troops on the ground, but also quietly expanding black ops in Cambodia and Laos. Now, why is that a big deal? Because we weren't at war with Cambodia or Laos, Cambodia or Laos. So now you have the idea that Nixon's. There's a, a illegal war going on against two countries we're not even technically involved with. But why are you doing that? Because we're tracking the NVA and the Viet Cong, who they are kind of hiding behind these borders, or maybe they don't give a shit about borders like we do. Maybe the cartography, not really a huge, huge thing for them, I suppose. Right. But hey. they also knew that this was a way you can play the Americans against themselves by making them do something where you can label them as a war criminal. It's kind of like when you hear about uh, Al Qaeda and the Taliban, that what they would do sometimes is that they would. Uh, uh, you know, have a bunch of guys shooting at the American troops from a mosque or a school so that then the Americans would then go in and take, oh, look, the Americans bombed a school. So a psychological warfare is really on display over here. And Nixon, who, again, in front of your eyes, Nixon with the magician that he was and really a complicated guy, so much to admire, so much to loathe. Um, but 
what a magician he is that in front of you, he's saying, oh, yeah, we're on our way out of Vietnam and I'm getting rid of the draft and we're doing this. And he goes, also, uh, we're going to send in more SEALs and there's going to be black ops units that are going to be running themselves. And, uh, you know, we're going to figure this out. We're going into other countries and I have a big plan to actually come back and win the war in full. We'll get there, folks. We'll get there. Will you know about it? I don't know. Kissinger seems to think it's a good idea. (laughs) So it gets wild very, very quickly here. Nixon will also, hilariously enough, again, back to that magician thing, signs the Paris Peace Accord, which ends U.S. involvement in the war. North Vietnam will eventually, though, continue. This is why this is the thing. We want to label uh, uh, Nixon as a a snake. And he is. There's absolutely some snake to his game for sure. Um, But there's this weird idea, too, of, well, now the North Vietnamese Army, they're going to be in these peace talks with us. So while Nixon's quietly going through back channels to figure out how to expand the war, potentially, the North Vietnamese Army is like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, uh, great, peace talks, yeah, we're going to do this, we're gonna, don't worry about that. Also, we're going to take over all of South Vietnam as soon as you guys are at, we're, we're making our plans now, so we're ready to do it. We're going to have another little mini Tet Offensive, if you will, another surge. So, um, Nixon, again, wild guy here, uh, overwhelming lack of support for the war meant expanding it would be political suicide. Nixon eventually has to, he's got to get reelected, right? So that's all. There's even a line in the Nixon tapes where I think he goes, uh, I don't give a damn how many people have to die. I'm trying to win an election here, which sounds cold and it is cold. But his idea is, well, it doesn't matter what policies we make today. If I don't win reelection, I can't affect anything tomorrow. So again, that's another caveat to try to take into account over here. But Nixon's quietly planning his further expansions, but also sends Kissinger out to begin these peace talks in secret, right? So there's secret peace and there's secret expansion of the war simultaneously. Uh, Nixon's very, very confusing uh, as a guy. Uh, But after several other operational efforts in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, a couple of them being like real like shock and awe type kind of a thing to, to some people, you know, a couple of Pete Stegmaier and a couple other the uh, the good people that know uh, are familiar with military terms, they'll understand uh, some of the stuff we're talking about here. They were hoping that you could have a a big moral victory maybe to turn the public opinion tide of the war, but it never really came into fruition. People never kind of got over that Tet Offensive thing. And then you're hearing about the the My Lai Massacre uh, that's being perpetrated by the U.S. troops. And it's like, well, what the hell are we doing over there, man? You know, and they start listening a little bit too closely to Bob Dylan lyrics. And then they decide it's time to kill John Lennon, that kind of stuff. That kid that used to live down the street is now turned into some type of a monster because of the uh, U.S. war machine. Yeah, it's these are um, your brothers and you're uh, the kids you grew up with that are fight. If you're a father around this time frame, you're proud of your son for going overseas and fighting like you did if you're a World War II or Korea veteran. But uh, now you're like, well, I, I hope this kid's coming back at all because I don't know how long there's no end in sight over there. What you had to do is you had to get rid of Hitler and then you could the Nazis were beaten if you could get rid of Hitler kind of a thing. That was the theory. And boom, it seems to be that there's a very resolute opinion on uh, Vietnam wanting uh, to have the U.S. troops out. And again, our own allies over there are saying, listen, I know you guys are trying to help, but you are causing way more problems than you're worth right now. So, uh, by the way, this the U.S. manages to wind up evacuating during uh, the – you want to talk about just an image that's burned in everybody's collective conscience – is uh, the brutal fall of Saigon, right? So do you remember watching any of this on the news growing up? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. How many people do you think they got out? Because I thought this these numbers were interesting. I mean, about at this particular point in time now, um, uh, you know, they've, they've eliminated the draft. Things are winding down, but you could you could see that the, the, the communists are just going to sweep over South Vietnam. 
Uh, Meanwhile, they're trying to say withdrawal with uh, dignity. Yeah, you know? withdrawal with dignity. That you know, we're going to turn over the uh, the war in Vietnam to the Vietnamese. <laughs> Uh, well, that was. Let just, me tell you, withdrawal uh, never works. Yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, pulling out or withdrawal, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, uh, yeah, the, the fall of Saigon, uh, those images, again, uh, a media image uh, is etched in our minds of, uh, you know, the last people grasping onto the, the helicopter trying to fly off the uh, off the embassy roof. That uh, uh, that's, that's an image that. You know, you're left wondering, well, what happened to those to those who didn't come out from the from the fall away? We saw how the communists came in and just slaughtered people who were even, remo- you know, um, remotely associated with uh, American uh, sympathies. Um, what what happened to those people? Uh, well, that's the problem. We'll just, never know. We'll never know. We got out, by the way. I thought this was worth mentioning here. Um, so by July of 1975, North and South are united again as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam under communist rule. Uh, again, in getting people out of Saigon, the U.S. managed to uh, evacuate 1,000 Americans and 7,000 Vietnamese before the communists wound up taking the city. Now, what was the fallout on that one? We don't really know because the communists are great at blocking the press out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and that's not taken into account all the... Uh the Vietnamese, uh, what we call the boat people, that uh, people were just jumping into whatever to get them out, of, to get out of the country and get to anywhere um, before the communists took over. So I mean, there, there's thousands upon thousands of people that are unaccounted for as to you know they're just fleeing the country before the communists take over. And again, relations are hostile here, so you're not exactly getting a fair exchange of information. It's not a, a dignified war here. Uh, and I think that was by design by both sides, to be honest. Uh, American lives lost are above 58,000. So if you want to see something, go see that Vietnam Wall, man. That's uh, uh, some time for a little quiet reflection on that one. Um, but that Vietnam Wall is, uh, is incredible. Uh, again, the people killed uh, in action. American lives lost 58,000. The Vietnamese government will later admit that the South Vietnamese Army, the people who had been fighting bravely alongside U.S. forces in hopes of maintaining Southern Vietnam sovereignty, uh, they're going to lose 250,000, around around 250,000 lives are lost there. Now, the NVA and Viet Cong, that's the people who seemingly won this war, seemingly, I say, uh, losses are estimated at over 1.1 million 1.1 1.1 million NVA and Viet Cong are killed during it. So if you want to go by body count, which is what the U.S. military was using to try to dictate success, um, they they absolutely accomplished their goal. I mean, you want to drop more of them than they, you know, the Chicago way, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And uh, it's crazy because that also shows the resolve that those people had that this is not a fight for a war. This isn't for some territory or some, you know, a, a, a new place uh, within the, the political hierarchy. This war is going to be something that will be passed down from generation to generation until you're gone, until you're out of here. This is a fight that's yeah. it's from the bone. And again, that goes back to your to your to your history that. Uh you know, the Vietnamese were trying to oust the French, then they were trying to oust the Japanese, and then they were trying to oust uh, mm-hmm. the, the U.S. That, uh, you know, um, talk about the, uh, the domino theory and the Truman uh, doctrine and all you want. But if these people truly wanted to go to communists or if the communists were going to prevail, uh, that's the way they were going to go. 
Well, something worth noting here too. There's uh, you, know, you want to talk about great quotes in terms of uh, you know something to, to rev up the troops, if you will. Great speeches made by military leaders over the years, uh, or, or just something that you're like oh, that stands out. Let me think what we're trying to do here. Um, a line that was given to all of the people who are about to carry out the Tet Offensive, which, by the way, this plan has failed physically, but psychologically, dear God, you really showcased something. Um, one of the things they were actually quoted by saying here was, I believe the term was, uh, as they're telling the NVA and Viet Cong that are about to carry this out, crack the sky and shake the earth, that that's their kind of goal. We're going to crack the sky, we're going to shake the earth. I would say it worked because you scared. And I'm not saying you scared them because they, again, the, it's so weird because in the history books, these are listed as American and uh, Southern Vietnamese Army victories. Yeah, both well, sides claim victory. Yeah, well, I, I don't know how the NVA, it's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird how the NVA and the Viet Cong completely lost everything, but the chaos they were able to put in there shook the confidence of uh, the South Vietnamese government and also the United States involvement in it. So sort of, it kind of worked. It's a losing effort initially, but the psychological pain is going to stick around for much, much right. longer afterwards. And eventually it does get the United States out of Vietnam, which is crazy. Yeah, it was a military, militarily, it might have been a, a loss, but um um, as you said, psychologically or a, a mindset change uh, was uh, took place because of the whole Tet Offensive, no doubt. Now, I want to give a little bit of a quick shout out, if I can, to uh, Sandy Burke, who uh, my, my beautiful mother, who got me an iPad for Christmas a couple of years ago. And we've been using that uh, for our notes on here all the time to keep the show uh, rolling. So you don't have to hear as many papers being shuffled in the background. Hey. We came in today. I forgot to charge that thing last night. It was on 8% battery. And holy hell, Lawrence Patrick, 1% battery in the episode's over. So that's pretty good. All right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Anything you want to say on the way out? No, it's, uh, it was you know interesting times. I mean, I can remember as a, personally um, coming out of high school and going into uh, freshman as a college, uh, that the first year of the draft, guys staying up to find out what their number was going to be in the draft. Um, I was uh, a young freshman, so my draft number really wasn't pulled until the second year of the draft. But, uh, and, you know, that was uh, some scary times. And, uh, um, you know, I have a, a deep personal gratitude to those who did serve that a guy like me could uh, maintain his uh, 2S, his 2S was a student deferment that uh, I never had to uh, serve in Vietnam, but uh, had I not been in, already enrolled in a teacher education situation, my ass would have been khaki and over in the, the, the old expenses paid trip to Southeast Asia as the, as the line was during the time. So, uh, Yeah, back then you weren't as excited about the draft as you are nowadays with the NFL. <laughs> right. Yeah, you see yeah. who we got in the draft? My neighbor. Right. Right. I mean, guys were uh, definitely considering uh, moving to moving to Canada to avoid the draft or whatever. Uh, others were were going in willingly. But I think the vast amount of guys that, uh, you know, when you start to read the numbers about how many people served in Vietnam that were uh, enlisted or or draftees, um, that's a, a skewed number, too, because I think there's a lot of guys that realized that they were going to be drafted so they might as well might as well enlist and try to come up with some mm -hmm. kind of a uh, some kind of a plum out of out of that deal but uh, 
uh, it was uh, troubling times for sure for America, not only in Vietnam, but on the home front as well. As I said, with all the all the riots and uh, uh, um, social discord that took place. Thank uh, God all that's over with and we just have yeah. a, a, no everything's now, nice now and easy all, going over here. It's all uh, <laughs> hugs and kisses and hearts. And, well, shit, man. This was a great one. Thank you for uh, uh, all the research you did, as always, man. Thank you to Ming taking excellent care of us. The servant in, uh, you know, the Kahuna normally would throw to him for a casting couch for this one. Like, what would be is like, we know what it's going to be, Kahuna. It's puppets. Kason with puppets. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's, <right>. it's, <laughs> but Ming, thank you so much, man. Great seeing you as always, brother. And I uh, appreciate what you guys do. Uh, we're actually heading down to the secret stash after this, the brand new secret stash, because we got to go see Mike Zapsik about selling him some of my dad's weird Disney thing. I don't know, I don't know what we'll call it <laughs> officially. Keep that on the down low, <laughs> But uh, yeah, we have Disney's uh, frozen head. My father found it in the back That's of a shop right. in Ridgewood, New Jersey. But no, this one was great, man. If you guys enjoyed the show, it means a lot to us. If you can't afford to join us over on Patreon, where it is just as little as three dollars a month to get the bonus episodes uh do me a solid if you can maybe leave us a review over on itunes subscribe to the youtube channel or anything like that subscribe to the podcast tell a friend about it maybe share it whenever we put everything out we're putting stuff out every lose day so that's tuesday by the way all right and uh, we're having a great time with that one man we love doing this show and any contributions you guys make for us whether it's just helping us out by spreading the word or maybe joining it making that jump over to patreon and helping us out all that money goes to buying Ming. Okay, that's what we do. We buy Ming every week for now. Buy Ming's love. <laughs> but we love you. Check us out over at American Loser Podcast on Instagram, American Loser Podcast on Facebook. Uh, I'm at KP Burke Sucks over on Instagram, KP Burke over on Facebook. If you message me, I, I will always try to get back to you. Hit me up on my own personal account too if you want to, because I, I try to check the American Loser stuff and keep up with it. But sometimes, it, you know, I got to wait a couple of weeks. But. You guys are fantastic, man. Also, check it out. I got upcoming tour dates, stuff like that. I'm actually going to be headlining. Uh, I believe it's called uh, uh, Battle <laughs> Battle City Brewery or something like that. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're headlining. You really got to, you're on top of all of that. Yeah, stuff. I'm screwing this one up. That's pretty bad. Um, I'll say this. So here it is. I just pulled it up right now. Battle River Brewing in Tom's River, New Jersey, 69 Main Street. Going to be uh, me and uh, uh, this is actually going to be a great one, man. So my buddy Angelo Gingerelli, who just came on, he's been on for a couple episodes. He's putting the show together also on the show is jack steiger who is uh, uh, our australian buddy that knows a little bit too much about witchcraft and uh it's going to be me headlining that boy that is thursday july 15th the show starts at 7 30 i'll probably be up there a little bit after eight or something like that come on by try some local brews or something and uh, we'll figure it out it's going to be a good one man there's also apparently a guest dj just in case i bomb you can still grind with some italian girl afterwards <laughs> jersey shore baby so it's going to be a damn good one man maybe we'll sneak ming out for that i don't know if we will I, uh, I'm out of town, gentlemen. But uh, uh, if I wasn't, I would be there for sure. Beer and uh, and comedy. It's, it's two things we could have gotten them yeah. for, man. That's right. But this was awesome. Mink, thank you for your patience as always. And guys, uh, my name was KP Burke, and that was the Ted Offensive American Loser. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. Can loser the day I was born.